The Gospel of John records people consistently encountering Jesus. And what you see at every single point is when someone encounters Jesus, they have a decision to make. They can no longer live their life ho-hum, status quo, as though nothing happened. And what you see over and over is when people encounter Jesus, they don't stay the same. They're changed. And you see this beginning with chapter 1 in the Gospel of John. You see Andrew, who encounters Jesus. And what happens? He goes and finds his brother Peter, and he says, we have found the Messiah. Excited, he goes and finds his brother. And then you see in the same chapter, Philip encounters Jesus. And he goes and finds his friend, Nathaniel, and says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, come and see. And then you have Nathaniel, who then goes and encounters Jesus. And he cries out, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. John the Baptist encounters Jesus and says, he is the Christ. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You have all of these encounters. And when people come face to face with Jesus, they're coming face to face with the living God. And I'm praying that today that we will have a fresh encounter with Jesus. Maybe for you it's been hard or maybe you feel spiritually that you're stale or stagnant. I don't know where you're at, but wherever you're at, you have to know this on the authority of God's word, that the spirit of God wants to meet you right where you are and give you a fresh encounter with Jesus. Because what happens when you encounter Jesus, as we saw in these examples, it results in worship, being in awe of Jesus. It results in belief, so believing in him joy. So let's read about an encounter in John 4. As we continue in our series, we saw an encounter last week where Jesus met with Nicodemus, who was a scholar, a a ruler. He was educated and had status and very religious and a leader. And today we're going to encounter the exact opposite of Nicodemus, A woman who was broken and thirsty and an outcast. And Jesus encounters her and loves her just as much as he loved the religious elite, Nicodemus. John 4. Let's begin to read the first few verses. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. 
A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his livestock. Then Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let's pray. Oh God, as we approach you and we approach this text, we do so with this sense of awareness that we are thirsty. And what we need most is just you, Jesus, living water. We need a fresh encounter with you. We ask right now, God, that you would open the heavens and that we would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That we would not be here to check off some religious box. That we would not be here to play religious games. That we would not be here to be seen or to maintain some sort of expectation or something to do with our own status or that we'd be here to try to earn anything from you or be here so that we can feel like we're better about ourselves and then you would be in debt to us. And Father, we just push all that aside and we are here to just drink from living water. So I ask, that your spirit would be heavy here. And as you've seen earlier in John, that you, spirit, would blow here and that we would see the effects of this wind and see lives transformed, worshipers, that this church would be found faithful and that you'd be glorified through her. We exalt you, Jesus, and we ask for your blessing and your help and your transformation for the praise of your name. Verse 1 is significant. It's giving us context. It begins by saying, when Jesus heard that the Pharisees, so it's saying he heard the news that the Pharisees are aware that people are following Jesus. Disciples are then baptizing them in the Jordan River. It says Jesus heard this news of the, of the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And then verse 3 says, what? That he had to go. So he left Judea and he departed. 
It says, from Galilee to, I'm sorry, from Judea to Galilee. So you have Jesus who's been in Jerusalem. So if you know the geography, and if you don't, you can look in your Bible. I'm sure there's a map in there, and you can see where Jerusalem is in the south of the, of the region of Israel. And he'd been in Jerusalem. We know this because he was at the Passover in, in chapter 1. We, we know this also in chapter 2. He, he cleaned out the temple, so he was in Jerusalem. Chapter 3, he's talking to Nicodemus, who lived in Jerusalem and was a ruler of Israel. And so the first three chapters of John, you know that Jesus has been in Jerusalem, and it says now he is heading north. He's leaving Judea. Now, do remember that the Roman Empire rules the world in the first century, and Judea is a province of the Roman Empire, and there is a governor named Pilate that we'll meet later in John. And so each province had a Roman governor, and so Judea was a province, a state, if you will, within the the whole region, this whole massive empire called Rome. So he is now leaving Judea, and he's heading north. Now, the average Jew would generally cross the Jordan River to the east, head north, and then cut back to get to Galilee in the north because they didn't want to go through this center region. There was a region that was in between Judea in the south, Galilee in the north. In the middle, there was another region called Samaria. And Jews did not go through Samaria, ever. They go through the hassle of going across the river in order to bypass Samaria. And you think, well, that's ridiculous. Why would, he, why would anyone do that? That was normal. I'll explain why in a couple of minutes. Jesus, however, it says that he had to, in verse 4, go through Samaria. So technically, you had to because that was the most logical path is to just go north through Samaria to get to Galilee. But Jews didn't do that. But Jesus says that he had to. Now, let's just be very clear. Jesus doesn't have to do anything just so that we're all on the same page. He created the world by speaking. And through the power of his word, he is sustaining every single molecule, including in your body and in existence. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Everything that exists is by him and for him. And if you want to know what he's about, Read about him in Revelation chapter 1. You see Revelation 1, Jesus in full glory, and you realize, oh, oh, that's Jesus. Yes, he is the sovereign. He is the king, the ruler, the God who rules. Yes, there is a trinity, but the Son of God is described as a creator, along with the Father and the Spirit. It's, it's an entire beautiful reality here that we see with the Trinity. The Son is fully God. And so when you look at Jesus and you read that he has to do something, (laughs) ain't, ain't no one forcing Jesus. As we'll see even at the end of John, he gave up his spirit. No one took anything from him. No one took his life. He gave it. He laid it down. So even in his dying breath, you see his sovereign hand in complete control of everything. 
So when you keep in mind who Jesus actually is, God in the flesh, the eternal son of God, who had to do something, this is key. Let me explain why this is so significant for us and why I want to really explain this to you. It's because it can sometimes seem like like Jesus is being dictated by the circumstances. Sometimes in our lives, it seems like our problems, our struggles, what we're facing is so big. And it seems like Jesus is powerless. And it can seem as though Jesus is like we see here, packing up and leaving town because things are getting hard. Because the Pharisees now know. The religious elites are on to him. And so it could seem like Jesus is afraid. It could seem as though Jesus doesn't want to have to mess with the Pharisees. And so because it's getting a little bit too hard, Jesus says, all right, I'm packing up. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving town because this is getting a little bit too hard, a little bit too hot, and just too contentious. And so Jesus is leaving right when it gets hard. And in your life, I'm sure you've had moments when you feel like when things are getting hard, it feels like Jesus has packed his bags and has left town. And what you need to know if you find yourself there today, he is not leaving town because it's too hard. He is in control. He has a purpose. If Jesus says that he had to leave, it's because he had a purpose to accomplish. He had the purpose of God to accomplish. And I understand in our pain and our failures or our disappointment, it could, it could seem as though he's checked out, but he's not. He has a purpose to accomplish in your life, just like he did and his reason that we'll see in a minute on why he had to, he had to to accomplish his divine purpose. Just like in your life, with whatever it is that you're facing, you can rest in knowing that he's got this and he is working it out for good. And that good may not be pleasant, but the ultimate good is that we be conformed to the image of his son. That is And so Jesus has to leave to accomplish a divine purpose. He has a divine encounter. So he has an appointment that he has to keep. And so he heads north, and he goes through Samaria. And we just read about this exchange with this woman. Did you notice how many times the text goes through, like, painstaking effort to mention Samaria? He had to go to Samaria. And then he meets a woman while in Samaria. She's a woman of Samaria. And she says, I'm a Samaritan. And it's like over and over the text is making clear, don't forget, he's in Samaria. You're like, well, why is that such a big deal? Like, why is the text emphasizing that so many times? And why did Jews commonly avoid Samaria in order to get to Galilee? Well, we need some history, some context to know who Samaritans were. So, Here's a little bit of history that you can read for yourself in the Bible, but I'll give you a brief run-through. 
when King Solomon, you're like, who's King Solomon? His dad was King David, all right? So David's son, Solomon, when he died, the nation of Israel was broken. It had a war, basically, and it broke into two. And so you had the southern kingdom of Judah that followed the lineage of David and Solomon. So you still had a Davidic dynasty in the southern kingdom of Judah. And then you had the northern kingdom of Israel that had all kinds of chaos and evil kings and no Davidic king in the north. So the kingdom of Judah in the south also had the tribe of Benjamin. So you had two tribes that made the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin. The other 10 tribes, because there are 12 total, the other 10 tribes in the north comprised the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, the northern kingdom had a capital called Samaria. The southern kingdom had a capital known as Jerusalem. This is not hard. You know these things, all right? Now, if you read the storyline, what happens in 722 B.C. is the world power Assyria from modern-day Iraq came in and just demolished Israel, destroyed them, tore down the capital Samaria, took everyone captive. Now, the Assyrians had a, a very harsh, um, think of it like a political philosophy, because that's what it boils down to. Their ideology was total subjugation. The Assyrians were very evil, and they wanted the people that they were conquering to have no way to have an uprising. And so what did they do? They took their, their captives, and they would, by force, disperse them all across their empire. So when they went into Israel, and they took these people of God, an ethnic reality as well, and they took them and relocated them and forced them to intermarry with other people. They'd separate husbands and wives and separate children and force them to intermarry. They wanted total annihilation, total subjugation. They wanted to erase them as an ethnic group, erase their religion, and just make it impossible and just total stamp people down so that they would have no hope and have no way to revolt. It was just very heavy-handed and very evil. And so oftentimes we know Testament, the 10 tribes, the lost tribes, these 10 lost tribes, they were lost because of the Assyrians forcing them to intermarry. And so you effectively have them lost. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah did not fall to the Assyrians. They survived by God's grace and for God's purpose to maintain the kingdom of Judah, to maintain the tribe of Judah, and to keep that intact because God had already promised that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. The lion from the tribe of Judah, he would have a scepter. He would hold the office of king, and a future descendant from Judah would defeat the enemy. And so if Judah had fallen, Satan would have won. There would be no redemption because there would be no tribe of Judah. And yet God has a plan, and so Judah did not fall. Jerusalem was under siege, but they survived, and Assyria went back to Iraq. 
Now, many years later, in 586 B.C., there was a new world power, Babylon. They defeated the Assyrians. They were the new global power. And Babylon, in 586, did defeat Jerusalem. The siege was successful. The walls were torn down. The temple was leveled. The people of Judah and of Benjamin were decimated. And yet, the Babylonians had a different political philosophy. They thought, Assyrians, that's too much effort. This whole subjugating and trying to destroy them and relocating them. Babylonians had a little bit freer philosophy of how they wanted to rule the world. Like, they still were evil and still wanted to dominate the world, but they did it a little bit differently. They said, okay, Jews, you can keep your ethnic identity. You can keep your religion. As long as you pay really heavy taxes, we're cool with it. But they did relocate a lot of the surviving people from Judah to modern-day Iraq as well. They were, they were exiled, but they were not completely annihilated. Then there was a new world power that came into play, which was the Persians. And the Persians then allowed this remnant to come back. Read about them in Ezra and in Nehemiah, where how they came back and rebuilt the temple. And so they maintained their identity, and that's when they were called Jews. Before that, they weren't called Jews. Like that word wasn't used. It was just Judah. But when they came back from at that point, modern-day Iran, the Persians, the, when, when, when they came back, then they had this new designation. They were called Jews, and they were part of the empire of um, Persia. So the Jews in the south maintained their identity. They maintained their ethnic, religious identity as a people. However, the Samaritans, so the first-century Samaritans, were the descendants of those 10 lost tribes. So Jews that had maintained their ethnic identity looked at the Samaritans as half-breeds, as filth, as unclean, as undesirable. The Jews could not stand their Samaritan brother. The Samaritans reciprocated with hating the Jews back. They're like, okay, you hate us, well then we'll hate you too. And the Samaritans built their own religion loosely on true faith, but they rejected the writings and the prophets. They only affirmed the Pentateuch, the first five books, as being scripture. And so Samaritans never read the prophets, never read anything else. They only read the first five books of the law written by Moses. And so they did not worship in Jerusalem because a Jew would see them as unclean. So if a Jew interacted with a Samaritan, it would make them unclean. Ceremonially, like religiously, they thought, oh, to touch a Samaritan would make you unclean, like undesirable and polluted or defiled was how Jews thought about Samaritans. At its root, it's political change because you have a whole different people 
And it was also religious because the Samaritans built their own temple to rival the real temple. The temple was in Jerusalem. And so they built a temple on Mount Gerizim, also called Mount Ebal. It's part of the same, the same mountain range in, in that area of Samaria. And you, and you can read about that in Joshua, where some significant things happened at Mount Ebal. And so there's some history there, but I don't have time to get into all that, but of why they chose Mount Gerizim. But they chose it, and there is where they built their own temple. Now, the Jews hated that they had their own rival temple. And so when they had some freedom, when after the Greek empire kind of fell apart with Alexander's death, and before the Romans came into power, the Jews had quite a bit of freedom for about 100 years or so. And in 128 BC, the Jews marched their armies right up to Mount Gerasim and destroyed the temple, unprovoked. It's not like they were attacked by the Samaritans. Samaritans doing their own thing, worshiping God in their, in their temple among Gerizim. And the Jews were like, oh no, that temple is defiled, it's evil, and they went up there and just destroyed it. So you can imagine that the Samaritans didn't really like the Jews very much. And then Rome came into power and they were not allowed to rebuild their temple. And so you have these Samaritans that feel disenfranchised and feel ostracized, they feel like outsiders, and the Jews have their temple, and the Samaritans reciprocate with hating them back. There was such deep division and hatred. It was ethnic, it was racist, it was theological, it was holistic. We, we can't, in our world today, we can't even begin to understand the degree of loathing that Samaritans had for Jews and vice versa. Oh, and one more thing, women weren't respected. Which, unfortunately, in the history of humanity, women have most of human history not been respected and been subject to abuse from men. And I thank God for the reality of in relatively recent world history where we have seen women now actually have rights and be respected as human beings and as image bearers of God and not just seen as property. And so I thank God that there has been an emphasis on women's rights and women's value because when you look here in the first century, women were not valued. They were basically just property, not much more than just reproduction. Like that was their only real value. And so men never spoke to a woman in public, ever. And a Jew would never speak to a Samaritan, let alone a woman like that. It was just absolutely unthinkable. And so with all of that backdrop and context, it really helps us understand John 2 much better. Let me give you four truths about who Jesus is from this text. And then each one of these truths that reveals who Jesus is, I'm going to give you one key word that, that helps you understand the implications. And so who is Jesus and why does it matter? So what is it really about who Jesus is and an implication for us today. So the first one, Jesus is the living water. You see this right here. Jesus is living water. And how does that impact you? Well, that word is satisfying. As living water, he alone satisfies our soul's deepest thirst. 
verses 5 and 6, it describes that it was the sixth hour. That's noon. They counted from 6 a.m. So six hour means that it was now lunchtime. It's 12. It's hot. Israel is hot and dry and dusty. And so he's been walking all, probably all morning, and he is tired. And so Jesus, being human, sits down. Yes, he is God, but he's also fully human. So he sits on this well. He sends his, his guys to go into town to go buy some food. A woman comes, and it says she's a Samaritan woman, which makes sense, a Samaritan town. And it says, woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus speaks to her. Like Jesus, a Jewish man, speaks in public to a woman who's a Samaritan. And he says, give me a drink. Now, you have to understand, like, for anyone seeing this, you'd be like, what? Ah. Oh my gosh, like how was that even happening? How was a man talking to a woman, especially a Jewish man? This would have been shocking and outrageous and inappropriate and offensive and unthinkable and appalling is the best word of anyone watching this respectable rabbi Jewish man speaking to a woman. And then he tells her, can I have a drink with your vessel, with your bucket? So it would be as though a stranger came to you, a complete stranger, and says, hey, can I have a drink out of your water bottle? You'd be like, hey, we're in a pandemic. Haven't you heard of COVID? Like, no, you can't drink weirdo. Like, whoa. That's what this was. A complete stranger going to a woman saying, hey, can I have a drink from your bucket? And let alone a, a woman and a Samaritan. So he would have, he was going to make himself defiled and unclean by even touching her vessel and have to go to the temple and do the rituals and be made clean again. Like this is just absolutely unthinkable. So when, when she says that phrase that we have no dealings, so that phrase on Samaritans they have no dealings with with Jews, it didn't mean that they didn't do like business deals. So, I mean, look, the, Jew, the disciples are Jewish. They're going into town with money to buy food. So they're going to go do dealings with people in town and buy food. That phrase doesn't refer to like a business transaction. No dealings means that the phrase means that Jews literally share nothing in common. So that phrase, no dealings, means share nothing in common. Because to a Jew, to do what Jesus just asked would be vomitous, like disgusting to even think about what Jesus just said so openly and so clearly. And this woman, she's not shy. Like she's fiery and just a firecracker. She was like, you're talking to me? Like, what, what are you doing like, what's wrong with you? She's like, we don't have anything in common. Why are you even talking to me? See, Jesus didn't care about the racism. He didn't care about the women were oppressed and unvalued in the ancient world. Jesus saw someone that he made. And he loved her. She was made in his image. So he was not going to let nonsense of his day, the racism, the division, 
the elitism. He was not going to let that get in the way of him loving this image bearer, this precious woman that he made, that he loved, that he would soon die to rescue. He has a mission to gather people from all nations, all people groups, both men and women, equal value, boys and girls together, worshiping the lamb who is worthy. And he gets right to her heart. He says, if only you knew who I am, if only you knew who was even talking to you and asking you, if you knew you would ask me to give you living water. Of course, she doesn't get it. And in her defense, how could she get it? She wasn't a scholar. She's not Nicodemus. But even if she were a Samaritan scholar, they didn't read the whole Old Testament. They only read the first five books. And so she has never heard the phrase living water before. She didn't know that it's throughout the whole Old Testament. Like we read today in our, our gathering from Isaiah 12. I read earlier from Isaiah 55 describing living water. So this is throughout the whole Old Testament. But in her defense, she didn't know. She couldn't understand what Jesus was talking about. Like, for example, in verses um, 14 and 15, when he says that the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then verse 15, she responds, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's thinking physically. She doesn't, she's missing the spiritual truth that Jesus is communicating on this about your faith. It's about trusting in me as Messiah and as a son of God. It's about treasuring Jesus like, and having your soul satisfied by the presence of Jesus as living water. She didn't, she didn't know that because she had never read Jeremiah 2. I'll read that to you here. Jeremiah 2 is an important text that describes this. Jesus is talking about this. Jeremiah 2, verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And then number two, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so God is saying to, through the prophet Jeremiah, 600 years before Jesus was born, saying that his people had committed two evils. One is they had abandoned God, the fountain of living water. And second, they had dug their own cisterns. Now this is just Shocking and horrifying. Wondering, well, why? What exactly is a cistern? So if you're not sure what that is, a cistern was a well that was usually carved in rock that would allow them to capture rainwater. So that way, whenever it was very dry in, like the, in the spring and the summer, then they would actually have water to drink and for their crops and for their livestock. And so it was a man-made underground, usually quite large, a very deep reservoir 
usually cut in rock. Now, a lot of times it could get leaks. And so they, they developed this like plasmid of lime. So this sticky lime plaster that they would line all the inside of this reservoir, this cistern, so that way when it dried and then it rained and they captured the water and they had a lid, then the, the water would not seep through into the ground. So it was a way to capture water, reservoir. But unfortunately, sometimes there were cracks. And if there was a crack in the cistern, all the water would just go right through the crack, it would seep through, and then you would have an empty, busted cistern, a well that had no water. So God is telling his people, I am offering you living water, and instead you'd rather go to a broken cistern. I'm offering you life and joy in my presence. And instead you go to idols, to false gods, and there you are in the bottom of this cistern, and you think there's water in it, but all you're doing is you're just grabbing dust. It's dry. It's empty. And rather than turning to the well of living water, we turn to the broken wells of this world. And so these wells, what are these wells? These wells is the well of sex. It's busted. The well of financial security is busted. The well of your own status by your accomplishments is busted. The well of your career is busted. Whatever well you're going to turn to, whatever well you want to go drink from in this world, what Jesus is telling us is it is cracked, it is empty, there's no water there, and we keep going, and all we're grabbing is just dust, and we stay thirsty. And this is appalling because God is offering a spring of living water. And his people were saying, I don't want it. That well looks boring to me. That well looks uninteresting to me. I'd rather go after my own cistern. And here you see the essence of evil. The essence of evil is on display right here. Is choosing to love anything else other than God. Finding more joy, more satisfaction in any well that this world offers other than the living water himself. And what exactly is this living water? Well, if you look in Jeremiah and in Isaiah and we look later in Zechariah, it describes God. So God the Father God himself is this living water. In John 4, you see Jesus is saying that he is living water. We'll see this later. In John 7, it says that it's the Holy Spirit that wells up living water in us. And you're like, so is living water God the Father or God the Son or God the Spirit? Yes. Yes. The totality of who God is. This divine Godhead, the Trinity, is living water. And only he can satisfy your thirsty soul. 
We're all thirsty. And don't think that we're thirsty because we're sinful, fallen creatures. That's not why we're thirsty. We're thirsty because we're human. Genesis chapter 2, verse 10 describes in creation, in the Garden of Eden, before there was sin, running in the middle of the garden was what? A river for them to drink. Of course, they fell and they were thrown out of the Garden of Eden, out of God's presence. And so you see throughout the prophets this call of, Jesus, God himself, is living water. And then you fast forward to the very end of the story in Revelation 22, verse 1, and you have this new Eden, new earth, tree of life is there, and running in the middle of the garden, flowing from the the throne of the Lamb, is the river of living water. What you see is this from beginning to end, God's purpose has been for his people to drink deeply of him, to have their soul satisfied in him. And there's a reason why it describes it a well that wells up, because we were not designed to drink once and be satisfied. We would drink, it says, eternal life, so we will drink for eternity from the well of God's presence, of enjoying him, of having him satisfy us. Who is Jesus? He is living water. How does that impact us? He alone satisfies. Second truth, Jesus is the prophet. So he is the prophet. And what is the impact? He is showing. He is showing us our heart. So he is the, the living water who satisfies, and he is the prophet who shows our hearts. You see this in verses 16 through 19. Back to John We're going to make up some time. We'll go quicker. Jesus said to her, go call your husband. He changes the subject. No longer talking about water. Now he's like, go call your husband. Come here. Verse 17. Woman answered him, I have no husband. She's being sneaky. She is saying a partial truth. I I don't have a husband. I ain't got no man. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now are shacking up with, he says, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. He's like, you're not lying. You're not telling the whole truth, but what you said wasn't a lie. And then verse 19, I love her answer. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. It's like, wow, you're so observant. Like, of all the things that you could have said, like, oh, yeah, I can tell that you're a prophet. She's right. He is the prophet, and he shows us our hearts. Why did Jesus change the subject from living water that satisfies to go bring your husband? Because he was showing her her deep thirst. He was trying to get her to see her deep thirst, her deep need, her brokenness, but also her deepest idol. What woman has five husbands and then lives with another one and is like a woman who needs to have her head examined? Like, no, that's not normal. That's, and even in the ancient world, that was not a normal thing. This is like a shocking thing. 
It shows that this woman had been turning to men to heal her brokenness. She was, her soul was thirsty, and she kept turning to relationships, kept turning to men to satisfy her thirst, and it wasn't working. The, the, the cistern, the well of men and of, of marriage is busted, and it cannot satisfy your soul. And see, and Nebli was not going for quality men because she was a serial polygamist. It's very sad broken woman, but less would be too hard on her. Let's, for you point the finger, you got to pull the thumb and be honest that we're no different. We can turn to the wells of this world just as easily as this poor woman had done. And he was showing her mercy. He was loving her and showing her her deep idol, showing her her deep thirst. As the prophet, he shows us, he exposes our hearts. Number three, he is the mediator. So as the mediator, he allows us, like what is the impact? Savoring. Savoring his Goodness. He is a mediator who allows us to savor. So he is living water who satisfies. He is the prophet who shows our need and our thirst. He is a mediator who allows us to savor the goodness of God. I'm talking about Psalm 34, verse 8, that says, Come, it says, Taste and see the Lord is good. Taste. His goodness, seeing and savoring all of his goodness. You see this in verses 20 through 24 in the same conversation. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. So what she does here is now she's changing the subject. She's like, oh, he's getting kind of personal. Like he's like exposing me. She doesn't want to be exposed because it hurts to be exposed to see your need, your brokenness. So what does she do? She changes the subject to the big theological debate of the day on should we worship in Jerusalem like you Jews say or in Mount Gerizim the way Samaritans say? Where is the proper place to worship? And Jesus is not going to get sucked into a theological debate. He gets right to the heart. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. 
he is saying, yes, salvation came from the Jews. Jesus is Jewish, but he says something new is coming. We're, we're dawning on a new era where now there's going to be all nations, all people will come together and be the people of God. And so Israel was always meant to be a light to the nations. And he said, now it's here because I have come. And the word for worship here is the word proskuneo in, in the Greek. And it describes worshiping at the temple. So specifically, it's not just general worshiping anywhere. It's worship in the temple having to do with the sacrifices. And so they were sacrificed animals and also used like wine, oil, and flour also as offerings. And so the worship here is tied to the temple and enjoying God's presence, having sin removed and enjoying God. The best example of this is the peace offering, one of the several different kinds of offerings. You would offer your offering, and then it would, it would close. It was beautiful, where the worshiper would bring his friends or his family and would eat with the priest, and they would have a meal together at the end of the peace offering. And the idea was representing that God's people were enjoying a meal with God. It was this eating in God's presence of enjoying him. It's a picture of fellowship made possible because of the shalom, the peace that Messiah would bring, pointing to the once for all sacrifice, which is why Jesus said, we looked at this weeks ago in John 2, he says, I am the temple. Jesus' own body is the temple. He is the mediator that brings us into the presence of God. What does a mediator mean? It's a go-between. So it represents both parties, that there's mutual blessing. So if you are getting a divorce, I hope you don't. You can get a mediator. You do mediation. All that word means that there's a person that is in between both parties to come to consensus. And so Jesus is the ultimate mediator between man and God. He represents Man, and he represents God. He is the perfect mediator because he alone is the God-man, God in the flesh. Only Jesus could be the mediator between God and man because he is fully both, both natures. First Timothy 2, 5 and 6. Therefore, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Only he could be the mediator and give his life as a ransom because only he is fully God, sinless, holy, perfect, and fully human to represent humanity and usher in a new humanity who worship in spirit and truth empowered by the Spirit of God, made new by His Spirit, indwelt by His Spirit, and centered on the truth. And who is the truth, the way, and the life? Jesus. The Spirit allows us to worship in the Spirit, focus on the truth of who Jesus is. Isaiah 44, verse 3. A promise of the Messiah. I will pour out water on the thirsty land, and streams on the dry ground. Now pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. 
He's pouring out his spirit. He's pouring out living water. So he's creating a worshiping community for his glory. And that's what this is, a worshiping community, the hunger for the word. Lastly, as we close, Jesus is, number four, Messiah. And as the Messiah, what is the impact? He is saving. He is living water who satisfies. Lastly here, we're seeing that he is the Messiah who is saving. Last two verses, and we'll wrap up. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. He is the Savior, the anointed one to save us from our sin, being pierced for our own transgressions. And so being saved means you can worship God. You see, everyone worships. Every single person worships. To be alive, to be human is to worship. We always give our hearts to something. The question isn't, do you worship? The question is, what or whom do you worship? And being saved through the power of the Spirit, now he enables us to see the truth and enables us to worship God, find true freedom and joy. One last verse, Zechariah 14, verses 8 and 9, to give you a summary. Zechariah 14, 8 and 9 describes the Messiah coming. And it says, on that day, living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. This thirsty woman found living water. We'll study the rest of her story this week in home groups, and we'll see how she was transformed, how she became a missionary, and how the whole town came to faith in Messiah. It's an absolute amazing transformation story in her life and in her village because she encountered living water. Are you thirsty? Are you digging? for the wells of this world and coming up dry. Pray that you will trust in Jesus alone. Depend on him. Be satisfied. and Come encounter the spring of soul satisfying.